This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. We have allowed ourselves to become so disconnected and ignorant about something that is as intimate as the food that we eat. Be prepared to grow your own for victory. Ron said I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink foam pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. Well, hello and welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. I'm your host, Harold Thornbro. Glad you're joining me today, and this is episode 120. It's April 21st, 2019, and today we're going to talk about a few favorite perennials with guest Natalie Bogwalker. She is the founder and director of WildAbundance.net, and we're going to discuss, like I said, a few of her favorite perennials. We're also going to talk about uh, you know, her homestead and her school, Wild Abundance, and the classes they offer. And uh, before we get into all that, though, let's just have a few homestead updates. What have we been doing around here? I finally got around to incorporating that uh, kids' uh, playground for the grandkids in, into the garden area. I had to take out a couple beds to do that. I'm not really upset about that. I've been kind of expanding and doing some other things in some other places. So it's going to work out all right. I didn't really lose any space. I'm actually gaining a little bit more garden this year, but it's just I took out two of those those pallet beds that you've probably seen in pictures before or I've posted in, on the website, but that's okay. You know, those are those are getting towards the end of their life. We've had them for, I think, six years now, five, six years, and uh, they were only really good for a couple more years probably anyway. I was going to have to replace them, so I pulled out two of them. Uh, to put up a swing set and stuff, but I am going to do some, you know, incorporating the garden around that swing set a little bit, put some things in pots and things like that. But you know what? We're doing more than just raising veggies on this, uh, this homestead here. You know, the grandkids are here a lot and, uh, we're, we're growing grandkids as well. So we had to have a place for them as also, um, the greenhouse is about full of seedlings. We, I've got it just about maxed out. I got a few spots left for some trays, but I'm going to have to start uh, working some stuff out into the garden outside. So I'm excited about that and, and, and planting a few more things. I got more things I want to plant, but I got to start rotating some stuff out. And I may just have to uh, set stuff out. And if it does get cold, set it in the floor or something in the greenhouse um, through the nights or whatever when it's cold outside. But yeah, it's, it's filling up pretty good. Uh, potted up a ton of comfrey crowns. And I'm still not sure what I'm going to do with all that. <laughs> I dug up, moved a bunch. I've I've just separated a bunch, and I've got a bunch of pots of it uh, of growing plants. And I plan on giving some away and maybe selling some. I'm not really sure how I'm going to play all that out yet, but I got a bunch of it. So, uh, yeah, I got that. And I've also got goji berry cuttings. Now I I kind of took it last year as an experiment. I took a bunch of it that was uh, I could see it was starting to root. It was laying across the ground and. Um, uh, some of the limbs were laying across the ground. I seen they were starting to drop roots. So I cut out a whole bunch of those sections. Uh, I don't know, probably like 20 uh, sections of that that had the roots in it. I potted them all up through the winter and this spring where they grew like crazy and they're really exploding. And uh, I potted all those up in bigger one gallon pots 
last week, and um, they're doing great, looking good. So I also got some goji berry bushes that uh, I need to do something with. So I'm not sure what I'm going to do with all that stuff yet. I'll probably give a few away, maybe try to sell a few. But yeah, it's uh, got a lot of stuff going on there. But I just want to do that kind of experiment, see if I get them to grow, and every one of them took off. Not one of them died out of all of them I potted up. I didn't really expect that. It's about the easiest thing I've ever propagated other than probably raspberry. But uh, yeah, real easy to deal with. But We've been putting out a lot of mulch and, and cleaning things up still. I went and uh, I chipped up a bunch of our branches we had around here, so I had to get all that cleaned up. Uh, things are things are coming together. It's starting to, starting to look like springtime around here now. It, we had such a mess around here for the winter, and everything's just kind of starting to come together. The beds are getting pretty ready, and we're getting a lot of the messes cleaned up from uh, pruning trees and things. And um, plants are looking good in the greenhouse, and everything's coming together. So should be a productive year, so I'm really looking forward to it. Well, with that, let's just jump into our main topic with uh, Natalie Bogwalker. We're going to talk about a few of her favorite perennials. Uh, as I said before, she's the founder and director of Wild Abundance. It's a school that teaches permaculture, natural building, eco-homesteading, and they're in the mountains of North Carolina. Natalie's just got a lot of experience with outdoor uh, stuff, with earth skills, herbal medicine, <laughs> just just she's just a she has a ton of knowledge she's been she's studied under some uh, some people with some really good skills and uh, her and her uh, partner frank they they run an herbal apprenticeship a natural building apprenticeship a permaculture apprenticeship and uh, and these days she's especially focused on women's primitive skills permaculture courses and home building workshops so she's got a lot to offer as you'll hear in our interview and she knows a lot about what she's talking about so with that let's just jump right in to this interview with uh, natalie bogwalker i know you're going to enjoy it well, Natalie, welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad you're here. Uh, now, you you got a lot going on. I first heard about you oh, probably like, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago. I actually heard you on another podcast. I've seen you in our Front Porch Facebook group, and uh, you were promoting a class, I was probably over a year ago, uh, for tanning hides. Uh, that I'd seen in, uh-huh. our, in our group uh, back then, and I know you got a lot going on. We're going to talk all about that kind of stuff here, here soon. Uh, but I'm really curious of uh, what got you down this path and doing all the things you're doing right now. Well, I just really wasn't satisfied by conventional life. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> it just felt pretty. I mean, probably like a lot of your listeners, like just going to work every day and coming home and watching TV and, you know, doing, doing just like the regular, the regular thing where you work and then you consume just was not satisfying. And I, a long time ago, probably about 20 years ago, I decided that that life just wasn't going to work for me. And, um, and so I decided to really go deep with figuring out how I could live a life that was more satisfying and that was also more just in harmony with nature and, um, and it stitched together a life that, that works pretty well. But I feel, I feel really thankful for my life and how I'm able to earn my living and spend my time and, what really sparked your interest about that lifestyle, particularly like uh, the, the kind of like being in the wild and being around nature and, and that kind of thing? Well, is there something that really called to you in that? Well, I got I mean, honestly, I was I was actually in school to become a genetic engineer and mm. I got hit by a car. <laughs> that changes things. <laughs> that, that impact really like knocked some sense into me, like literally <laughs> and figuratively. And so I, uh, 
yeah, I ended up quitting, um, quitting school and going traveling and, and just really learning a lot from my travels. And I got a little settlement when I got, when I got hit and I used that money to travel and, and, um, I ended up going back to school and studying ecological agriculture Mm. and I've just been on this path ever since. Well, let's talk a little bit about your uh, kind of the the, the ed- educational path you went down. I mean, how were some of the ways you learned some of the skills that you're teaching nowadays? That's a really good question. So I um, I went to the Evergreen State College in Washington State to complete my bachelor degree, and I studied ecological agriculture while I was there. And then um, I left and um, worked for a nonprofit and worked in the field and I, I traveled a lot and I finally settled down here in North Carolina. And when I settled down here, I took several workshops. I took a permaculture design course, which I had, I had studied permaculture when I was in college, but I learned more and learned more in this new area where I'm in, which is in the Southeast, which is just the place where my heart loves. There's such plant diversity here and it's really is awesome for me. Um, and I've taken a lot of workshops. Um, I have some mentors, um, Margaret Matthewson, who's an ethnobotanist out West is one of my mentors and Frank Cook, who is no longer with us, but he was a mentor for me with wild edibles and medicinal and Juliet Blankespor, who um, now runs the Chestnut School of Herbal Medicine. Uh, She was one of my mentors. And, um, yeah, and I've had a lot of – Steve Watts was one of my primitive skills mentors. And so I've been blessed. You know, I've finally become a mom recently, and I'm definitely on the older end of motherhood. (laughs) But I'm really thankful that I was able to spend my 20s and 30s really learning and then teaching these skills that I find to be just so compelling and so important in this day and age. Yeah, there you surrounded yourself with some uh, some great teachers then it sounds like. Definitely. Definitely. Well, now come on today to to maybe share with us a few perennial plants uh, for the homestead. You have a few favorites you want to tell us about today? Some things you you like to grow, you think are real important for the homestead? There's there's more than a few. I actually just we're not going to get into all of these, but I prepared this presentation that I gave recently of fifty, which was really only scratching the surface. Yeah, fifty so per many. But we're gonna we're gonna go into some of my some of my absolute favorites today. So um, mulberries, I oh, love yeah. mulberries. They're so delicious. The leaves are actually super high in protein. They're an excellent fodder crop for animals. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be grown full-sized or they can be coppice. And so, like, you know, there's the song all around their mulberry bush. And yeah. I've, I was always like, why bush? And it's because back in the day, people would coppice, mm-hmm. meaning in the wintertime, you cut it back, and then it shoots up a bunch of new shoots, and it keeps the mulberry tree short so that way you can easily pick the fruit and so mulberries are one of my favorites for sure along that line i I, there is a mulberry tree that i planted right outside of where i keep i have uh uh, meat rabbits that i raise and i planted a Uh mulberry tree right there just for the purpose to actually feed them the leaves off the mulberry tree because they absolutely love them and that's that's the full purpose of that tree (laughs) 
Well, that's so permaculture of you. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Have the bullets right above the rabbits. That's awesome. Uh-huh. That's really awesome. And then, it, does it yield tasty fruit too, or is you know it what? I keep it. I, I keep it coppice so low and so thick for the leaves uh-huh. that it really doesn't hardly put off any berries because it's just so thick uh-huh. with leaves. And that's the way I really want it because okay. that's what they're eating. So, yeah, that's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. So yeah, another one that I've been finally tasting the fruits of that has been really nice, especially for here on the East Coast, is the pawpaw in the mm. Southeast. So the pawpaw is a tree that um, that yields really a tropical type of fruit. I don't for anyone who's traveled to the tropics, there's this amazing fruit called the chirimoya, which is in the same family as the pawpaw. The pawpaw, I think, is not quite as magnificent <laughs> as the chirimoya, <laughs> but it's pretty darn good. And um, I planted a bunch of them. Um, at the school, kind of in this, in this very, we have this very tiny creek, might also be called a ditch. <laughs> but I planted a bunch of them along there. And they're really doing quite well. And last year we had our first harvest, and they're just delicious. And kids especially, like, love pawpaws. How so, old do those trees have to be before they start producing fruit? You know, I've gotten fruit off three-year-old trees. Oh really? What's the, you happen to know the zones for that tree? Do you the, like the range where it would grow? Well, we are in zone six, mm-hmm. and they grow just fine here. Yeah. I don't know if they will go any colder. I yeah. know that they're in Ohio. Yeah, it's probably zone and, five. I, I'm, I've heard of some folks around yeah. here. I live in Indiana, and I've heard some folks growing around here. I've never grown one, but uh, I've, I've heard some that a few people have grown them here in zone five. So I, that's why I was wondering maybe five to you know, then south of there, probably. That is five and up. I bet. Yeah. I bet so. I bet so. And I don't think that you can grow them in the tropics either. So oh, really? I would, I would, yeah, I would think like five to nine, probably mm, okay. five to eight. I was just curious. <laughs> and, and I wish I, I wish I had that in front of me. My brain works, can, can, uh, can sit up some information without referencing, but, um, numbers for some reason are not one of those things that it can easily like. Right. Well, pull Google's, out. My Google's heart- made me lazy. I don't try to retain the information anymore. I just look it up when I need it. <laughs> so, um, one of my favorite brambles. So I'm pretty into brambles and mm. wine berries. Do you guys have those in Indiana much? Uh, wine berries? I, I, no, I've never grown them. I mean, we have the you know blackberries, raspberries. You know, we have a lot of the, the bramble. Yeah. So wine berries are, are a really great bramble. Um, they are not native to here, but I think of them as not native but non-invasive. And they're a variety of raspberry, but they they grow in the woods, and they actually fruit in the woods, mm. which is, you know, super unique. Raspberries are much more likely than pretty much any fruit to fruit in the woods, but the wine berries are particularly good at it. So we have them growing wild here in North Carolina, but they're one that I like to bring into the garden. And I think I, I just also really like to highlight these plants that happen to be non-native and can go feral. But what that kind of means is that they're a great plant for your homestead because they probably won't need a lot of babying. Mm, and so yeah. wineberry, just the flavor is delicious. The thorns are very like 
not mean. <laughs> kind of more like, <laughs> won't, like, won't reach out and grab you when you walk by. Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, not like that. And not they won't like they won't they don't really do much damage. They're mostly just fuzzy. And so wineberries, I love. Thornless blackberries are awesome. It's interesting. I'm from the Pacific Northwest, and there there's some really actually pretty invasive blackberries that are the Himalayan blackberries mm-hmm. that are also from Asia, which are absolutely delicious. <laughs> when I moved here, the native blackberries that grow here in North Carolina are are not super invasive, but they're also pretty small and not super flavorful. Mm-hmm. And I have grown um, triple crown thornless blackberries really successfully here and they're just delicious yeah i brought those in on my property as well and they get huge too yeah man they do those berries are big yeah now i find that you you definitely there's a there to me there's a there's a fine line on where they're just perfect because they're pretty sour up to a point and then they'll they'll get Uh perfect and then you don't have very long after that you got to get them you got to get them harvested (laughs) oh yeah well, that's what kids are for, you know? Yeah, you're right. They'll find the good ones, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. And, and, I mean, what I find with blackberries is that you want to pick them when just, like, you put one finger on the berry and just wiggle your finger a little bit. And if they'll fall off mm-hmm. into your single finger, then you know that they're good. You don't want to yeah. have to, like, pull them off really hard. Yeah, they're sour at that point, yeah. No fun at all. Right. And then, of course, blueberries. You know, who doesn't love blueberries? But um, but something about blueberries that I think is really important is that you do soil testing before mm. you plant them because they're really particular about yeah. the pH that you, they like and adjusting the soil pH by adding like here. I mean, it's funny because I live in a forested area, so you'd think that my that my land would have a pretty acidic pH, but actually I'm like right at like 6.2, 6.5. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've planted blueberries that haven't been super happy. So right now I'm adjusting the pH on a good bit of my place to plant. I mean, not not like I'm planting two-thirds of my place in blueberries, but a big chunk. <laughs> I like blueberries a lot. And, um, and kids, man, they just eat, eat oh, you yeah. out of blueberries. Yeah, my grandson walks out the back door and he's attacking my blueberry bushes like crazy. What are you doing to uh, to adjust that pH for your blueberries? I'm putting a little bit of sulfur down, hmm. and so sulfur is is totally organic. It's kosher, um, and I can't. It, this is another easy Google search, but I think I think for yeah, I'd have to look it up, and that's something I could even get to you. But basically, it's just a really light sprinkling of sulfur. And it really helps get that pH down. Blueberries like it pretty much as acidic as you can get it. So, mm-hmm. so, um, mm-hmm. and then peat moss. Some people are really into adding peat moss yeah. to their blueberry plantings, but I've gotten mixed results with it. Like the thing with peat moss is it's so good at holding water, but then once the water's gone, then it is just like drying up and really change is disturbing the roots because it just like it becomes so much smaller and so i'm i think pine bark vines are a really much better thing yeah. than adding peat moss or planting them and definitely uh, some compost is a good idea and i've heard had some friends i haven't done it myself but using um biochar or okay. um yeah. charcoal that's been ground up that you activate with like a compost tea or urine also works um 
that can be really good uh, for blueberry. Have you heard of anyone like so, mulching around them with like pine needles? And does that help? I do it. I do, do it. You? It helps. I also just use wood chips to mulch around them. And, and I use wood chips. You know, I've gotten really, I don't know. Are you familiar with Michael Phillips? He mm-hmm. wrote the Holistic Richard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love his work. And um, he's really into rainmeal mulch, where oh, you yeah. take, and I've actually taken a bunch of autumn olives, which are pretty invasive, but they are also nitrogen fixing. And so I've taken, um, I've taken the autumn olives this year just as they started to bud out. So there's like all this juicy stuff going on. <laughs> <laughs> and I've taken that and I've fed it into um, a shredder and then mulched with those and i'm really hoping that that's gonna that's gonna really be good for the blueberries along with all my other perennials yeah, but yeah that's, that's good pine well, straw well i've held you a long time on blueberries because i i struggle with blueberries a little bit I'm, we have a few and mm-hmm. and they do okay but they're just they don't seem super yeah. happy they don't put off a ton of fruit like i expect them to you know they like a lot of water yeah. And it's funny because they tell you to not plant blueberries where their feet are going to be wet, but blueberries have such shallow roots. Like they're like, I think most of their roots are really in like a four inch depth. And so mm. they don't have access to like groundwater the way that yeah. a lot of like most of our perennials do. And so I've, you know, here in the um, Southern Appalachians, it rains a lot during the growing season. And I hardly even irrigate anything. Like I don't irrigate my garden, but I have drips on my blueberries and I did not for years. And then last year I put drip on my blueberries and some of them doubled in size, like just from having that drip on them. So really getting them regular water. Like I was, I was, Put, I set the timer to go off once a week, and I gave them like 45 minutes of water through just you know that little tiny drip. But 45 minutes about once a week, and they just loved it and thrived. And then just keeping that keeping that pH really low, keeping mm-hmm. them really acidic. And um, I have even put sprinkled a little bit of sulfur on them. Um, and it's a 10% sulfur. Again, I could look it up. I know that Seven Springs sells the sulfur that I'm talking about. And um, it it seems to be great. It seems to really help them. So, yeah, water and acid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to be paying more attention to my blueberries this year, trying to get them a little bit better, a little healthier. Like I said, they're, they're produced, but and they look okay. Yeah. They're just not getting big. They're yeah. not really growing a lot, and they just don't put off the amount of yeah. food I would expect them to. Yeah, totally. I've had a similar, had a similar stuff. And that's, that's really, I mean, that's one thing that's awesome about running a school is like, as I'm learning these things, I'm able to share it with other people so that they don't make the same mistakes that I made because it's really, it's really easy to make mistakes. And that's like, that's really a great way to find a good teacher. You you find somebody who's seasoned enough and has been doing these things long enough (laughs) and made (laughs) enough mistakes, hopefully where in the area where yeah. you live so that so that you can learn from their mistakes you can learn by experience uh, and through and through mistakes but it's nice if it's somebody else's experience and mistakes <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah that's that's a bonus and that was something that i did and this is this is something that i think is a really good idea is i live not everyone can do this i lived on several different farms and homesteads before i started 
wild abundance. And that getting to get really deep with other and experience other people's like, like uh, successes and challenges in like a day to day way can Mm -hmm. be a really good idea before you start out on your own. And that doesn't have to be that you're going and living at those places, but going and touring places Mm -hmm. or like our school does like, we have a earth skills and permaculture course. That's a eight month course and it's one weekend a month. And we visit like, I think eight different sites and the students get to talk with and, and really get to know those people. And, and, um, our, we also do a permaculture design course in September and we do two different tours. We do one that's urban and then we do another one that's more rural and it's really essential. And like, if you live, if you live in a place where you don't have access to a program like that, it can be good to just really network and then ask people to go visit their places and hear yeah. their stories. Yeah. I, I think that's great. Yeah. It's just, I mean, there, I think we live in a, a time now when it's great. You can get online, you can watch YouTube, you can learn so much that way. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's yeah. great, but nothing, there's nothing yeah. like getting your hands in there and doing it or watching somebody, you know, face to face kind of do something. It's just a different kind of experience. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I agree. Moving on from blueberries, um, basswood. And this is a tree that really, there's, there's a lot of places on the East Coast where it grows. I think on the West Coast, it's actually grown more ornamentally. I like grew up in Washington State, and it's interesting coming to the East Coast because there's such more tree diversity here, mm-hmm. which I love. But um, basswood is a really great one because the leaves are such good forage, and they're good forage. I don't forage. think I've ever even heard of that before. Oh, man, it's such a cool plant. You know, linden, have you heard of linden before? Yeah, yeah. European linden is a basswood. It's okay. very closely related. American linden, which is also called American basswood. Uh-huh, and okay. it's called basswood because the um, the bark, the inner bark of the basswood tree is an amazing fiber. And bast is like an older English word for fiber. And so this tree, I mean, it has so many uses. The, um, the wood is used for cabinetry. It's super light and weight but it's very strong it's beautiful the bark like i said from my primitive skills background i would use it to i would make bark lodges like houses that were that were sheathed in bark and um i would use the basswood bark to lash together the different members um i also use it when i would do crafts i would use it for lashing together baskets and um and the leaves are really delicious and they're great for making like you can just throw them in a salad you can cook them you can make like basswood leaf dolmas hmm. they're really fabulous so yeah i really recommend basswood yeah okay. it's really delicious and then um daylilies so daylilies i mean it doesn't seem like something that um that you would eat but actually, you can eat the root. I actually was on a survival trip one time, and we were in an old, um, like, abandoned homestead that was miles from any road. And there were, it was, there were all these daylily bulbs. And it was the very early spring, and we were eating daylily bulbs. So daylily bulbs are great food. The greens are also delicious when they first emerge. Um, you need to make sure to cook them. Um, yeah. The 
greens for some reason, I think there can be some toxicity. And it's best to get daylilies, like old-timey varieties of daylilies, or just the plain orange ones. You don't want to mess with ones that have, like, lots of extra petals and lots of colors. There can be a little bit of toxicity with them. We, we have um, the, uh, but, a lot of the, the tiger lilies uh, around my property. And I know there's they have, they're edible as well, but in certain parts and, you know, different things is with those as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. The, the flowers, the, if you just... And, and that's the other part that's edible on the daylily is just the flower. So if you just get a regular old orange daylily flower, delicious, so good on salads, a little bit mm-hmm. spicy. They're really wonderful. And a lot of and the folks so will fry them up like a up. mushroom here. They'll like batter them and fry them like a mushroom. Oh, that sounds good. That sounds yeah. very good. Very, very good. Yeah, I love fried food. I'm not, I'm doing this whole cleanse right now. Yeah, (laughs) we love it more than it loves us. It it tries to kill us. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Well, I was fantasizing about about, um, making uh, homegrown potato french fries today. Uh (laughs) It's going to be a while while I'm eating them. Um, So, yeah, daylilies are really great, and I call them a perennial vegetable. And so I've talked a little bit about berries and fruits, but perennial vegetables are really awesome for the homestead because there's something that you don't have to replant every year and it just keeps coming back. And so I really like these perennial vegetables. So speaking of that with lilies, I I tell you what, I grow a lot of comfrey and Uh my, my tiger lilies, which they're, it's all pretty similar to the, to the day lilies. I, I tell you what, I've never seen anything that could overtake comfrey except for that plant. Uh, <laughs> and it will completely shade it. I mean, it will grow up faster than it and then shade out the comfrey and kill the comfrey. I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's awesome. I don't yeah. know if my day is quite that successful, but that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it. Like, it almost makes me wish I wouldn't have planted it in some places. <laughs> when daylilies are cool because they they are another one that I think of as being a non-native but non-invasive. Like I was talking mm-hmm. about them like being in the woods where we were doing that um, doing that survival trip. And, you know, they stay where they were planted. It's not like they're just like we have this horrible plant, multi-flora rose that grows here that just takes over mm-hmm. and it's horrible. But, you know, daylilies, not, not like that. Um, and then another one of my favorite perennial vegetables is green-headed coneflower. So it's related to echinacea, and it's also known as sochan. So the um, that's the Cherokee name for it is sochan. And green-headed coneflower is grown ornamentally. It also grows natively here in the forest in western North Carolina. And it does fine in the forest, but when you take it, from the woods and you bring it into your garden or your yarden as some people, some people like to call it. Um, it thrives because you're, you're allowing it sunshine. You're giving it plenty of water and you are eliminating its competition, which is the reason why it doesn't make its way out of the forest on its own. Like it can tolerate shade, but it prefers sun. And it is amazing how much food you can get out of this plant. And it's really easy to propagate. You just do um, root divisions, which is basically taking the plants and sticking a yeah. shovel in it a few times and then taking a chunk out and planting it somewhere else. And I, um, yeah, I, it's a great one, too, because it puts off greens. So it, you eat the greens from it and it puts off greens 
in the seasons when it's not easy to get greens from your garden. And so in the early spring and the late fall, it puts off a lot of greens. And then in the summertime, it puts off this beautiful sunflower that has a green, hence the name green-headed coneflower. And, um, and yeah, I really recommend that plant. That's yeah, I've like, never, that's another one I've never even heard of, but it, you've got me uh, very interested in it. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's an awesome it's a totally awesome plant. Is that the only thing and, that's edible is the greens on it, or does it uh, like the roots the, or anything like that? I believe it's just the greens, but it's okay. very, pro- very, very prolific. I actually okay. planted some. I interplanted some with blueberries. <laughs> I had to move it because it was just it was just taking over and shading out the blueberries. Um, so oxide daisies. So those are not the ornamental daisies, but more the weed daisies that you see okay. growing in fields. So I transplant those also into my into my homestead, and they the, they're another perennial vegetable where the leaves, when it's still a basal rosette before it sends up um, a flower stalk, uh, the leaves are delicious in salads, and they have this like this sweet kind of zingy flavor. It almost tastes like if you've ever had wheatgrass juice, it kind of tastes like that a little bit. They're just Super nourishing and delicious, the greens. So probably my favorite solid green, although I have a okay. lot of favorites. <laughs> and then the flowers are beautiful. They're really good in salads. And also I especially like to pickle them. And they taste a lot like um, artichoke hearts. And I pickle them and I put them on pizza. And they're so yummy. <laughs> oh, sounds great. <laughs> yeah, so just ox-eye babies. They're the the typical daisies that you'll just see growing on the roadside. Nettles. So when I moved mm-hmm. on to my land, you know, most people think of nettles as being kind of a scourge. But when I moved to this land, this land was pretty damaged. It had been a dairy farm for a long time. And, you know, most of the native edibles and medicinals had been had been long gone, eaten by the cows. And, um, and I actually brought in both wood nettles, which are native, um, native nettles here in the southeast. I brought those in, and I brought stinging nettle, which are the European nettle, mm-hmm. and planted them because they're such a great food source, and they're really good medicine source too, and they're a good fodder crop too. So, um, yeah, nettles are awesome. Um, we have so many of those in the wild here that we know. I don't know anybody that actually brings them to their property because you can just take in a stroll in the woods anywhere and find a bunch of them. Yeah. But yeah. Well, there's, you know, if you're in, in town or wherever, sometimes it can be nice. Like if you just, that's one thing about, about my homestead is like, I just want to be able to go out my door and gather these foods. I don't sure. want to have to necessarily go to the woods. And so it's really, I've just brought them all, all there. And yeah. milkweed is another one that um, I, I love it. It's so delicious. But you have to cook it though. If you don't cook yeah. it, you're in for bad news. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I hear. I've actually never ever eaten it, but I know of some people who do. And then, yeah, that's their warning too. You want to you want to do it right when you when you're yeah. making an edible. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. And you don't have to like cook it in changes of water or anything like that. You just have to cook it. And what yeah. that does is it sets there these latexes that are in it. That's why it's called milkweed. Is when you pick it, there's like this white mm-hmm. milky juice that comes out, and that's what you want to. Make sure it's cooked. And so the flower buds 
Now, the flowers on milkweed smell divine. Like, it's just so nice to have it around. So delicious smelling. But they're so yummy. And the texture is really good. The flavor is really like asparagus. And, um, you know, wild common milkweed um, usually grows like three feet tall, something like that. I've gotten it to grow six feet tall when I bring it in my garden. And it's also, of course, great food for the monarch butterfly. Right, yeah. That's what everybody around here wants to do with it. Just plant them just for pollinator for the butterflies and stuff, yeah. Yeah, which is great, too. But, you know, what? Why not serve a little double or triple duty, you know? <laughs> I, hear you. Um, I have a friend, Doug Elliott, who's the storyteller and naturalist um, here in the mountains. And he actually um, stuffed a vest, made almost like a down vest, but stuffed it with, uh, with milkweed down from the pods. Cause after, so you can eat the flowers and then you can eat the young pods. But when the pods become mature, they make all this it's kind of like dandelion fluff mm-hmm. but yeah. it's like and he took all that fluff and made himself a vest like a down vest it was pretty pretty <laughs> awesome so, did he get attacked um, by butterflies or anything when he wore <laughs> no he managed to avoid the, the butterfly attack but um so i'm just going to mention one annual so and it all these plants that i've talked about so far of course are perennials meaning that they live year after year after year. Some of them are herbaceous perennials and those die back to the ground. Some of them, you know, are shrubs and they don't die back to the ground. But I'm getting into annuals, which are plants that each year they don't come back from the same root. They need to sprout from seeds. And so chickweed is a weed, like a lot of people really don't like chickweed. Like it can be very persistent in a garden, but it is probably the most nutritious food you will find in your entire garden. It's incredibly mm. rich in all sorts of minerals. And I've been writing a book about all this stuff. So it's it's um it's about wild food preservation. And so I get really into chickweed. I've got a few books, it's kind of <laughs> ongoing thing. But, you know, it's, um, it, that's one of them weeds I wish I had in my garden. It's one that I don't have. I mean, we we get you know the lamb's quarter and the purslane, and I love that stuff. But yeah, I've never uh, never had any of the chickweed growing in my garden. So I wish I, I almost wish I did. <laughs> you know, I actually brought it into my garden. I I found it growing actually in town, and I got a variety that had or took a little division from a variety that had particularly like big looking nice leaves and then i planted it in my garden and then it has just proliferated and so i I use it as a winter cover crop and i i really um i'm really i really put a lot of energy into cultivating my chickweed (laughs) it's pretty funny what what are you doing with the chickweed exactly i mean you you just eating it i mean i I make salads out of it it's another one of my favorite salad greens so i make salads out of it i make pesto out of it I have juiced it Pesto. in a greens juicer. Um, juicing just takes so much time. I don't really have much tolerance for it. But, um, but supposedly super healthy. And um, But, I mean, the biggest thing is all through the winter this year, like I put row cover over my chickweed to make sure that I have chickweed <laughs> throughout the winter because it'll, it'll die probably at, I don't know exactly, probably somewhere around like seven or, well, I would say probably 12 degrees. It probably dies. Really? Um, okay. So I kept, the, 
I kept it under row cover this year, and we also just didn't have a super harsh winter. We usually get down to like negative five, but this year we did not. And so almost every day this winter I ate a chickweed salad, which was <laughs> awesome. Like it does, it does way better than kale does under, under um, and it's healthier under wow. row cover. And um, the key is that you want to keep it pretty manicured and use scissors to harvest it. And when you use scissors to harvest it, you can keep cutting it back so it doesn't go to seed. Because, you know, like a lot of, just like lettuce, you know, if, if it goes to seed, it turns bitter and just, just more fibrous and just not all that tasty. Yeah. And so I keep it, I keep it mowed with scissors and um, just harvest baskets and baskets of it all through the winter and into the early spring. So you're obviously you're letting some go to seed because it, it is an annual, so it has to reseed itself, yeah. so. Yeah, so what I do is I I, mow, I keep it mowed, and then at some point I just let it go to seed. And then after I let it go to seed, I'm, I'm really an advocate of no or low-till gardening. And so after it goes to seed, what I'll do is I will um, I'll just come in with a weed whacker and, mm-hmm. or a, a hand scythe or whatever, although the weed whacker is incredibly efficient, <laughs> mow it to the ground. And then I put about an inch of compost on top of it, and then I'll plant right into it. Oh. And that, it just works so well. It's so much better than having to turn garden beds. But you really have to have your timing right. And yeah. um, and I weed other weeds out of my chickweed. Like I take the dead nettle out and other stuff that's going to be persistent throughout the growing season. The great thing about the chickweed is it's not going to come back and bother any of your summer crops because it's a cool weather plant. Hmm. So that's really really helpful so, so the yeah. seeds just kind of lay there till spring and then kind of come back in the just kind of come back in the spring then or no they'll come back in the fall oh in the fall okay yeah and then you just gotta go all winter and then you row cover it and then okay and then you just wait till like the next late spring to chop it down again or something well in this value in the late spring i just chopped down most of my chickweed just now in march okay. and then so i chop it down now because it's gone to seed and, you know, wherever you are, the timing is going to be a little bit sure. different. But just yeah. after it's been in flower for a couple of weeks, then surely it has made seeds and put them in the ground. And then I mow it really short. And then I go ahead and plant. And I can plant, like, I just planted onions into the bed that I had chickweed hmm. in. And, um, and they'll do great. And then sometimes what I'll do is if I'm not ready to plant yet, but the chickweed is ready to get mowed because I don't want to wait too long because if I wait too long, then other weeds will come in that are harder to get rid of. And yeah. so this time of year, I'll go and mow all of my chickweed down, put like an inch of compost over, and then the beds that I'm not ready to plant into because I'm going to put tomatoes or whatever that's a later crop, I will, um, I will then put leaves or some other mulch on top of the manure so that weeds don't grow there in the meantime before I'm ready to plant what I want to plant. And this is, I mean, no-till agriculture, you can really do it, on, especially on a small scale, and have it be less work than if you're tilling and turning beds and using a rotisserie. Sure. And you're going to have way better soil life, but you have to have your timing right. Yeah. And, and, you have to, and you have to put something in that spot, or nature will put something in that spot, right? Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. 
You've got it. So I could go into more and more, but I think that I think that does that covers like my yeah. You gave favorite. some you gave some great ones there, and a couple I'd never heard of. So I'm definitely going to look into those. Uh, yeah, let's take a couple minutes and let's talk about your school a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about that and some of the things you're doing and classes that are coming? Just all about that kind of stuff. I'm I'm really curious because I know you're doing quite a bit there, especially through the summer, and uh, I'd like to hear about it. Yeah, I'd love I'd love to talk about it. So Wild Abundance is really I get really jazzed if you can't tell about <laughs> a lot of different things. And permaculture meaning like, you know, agriculture that is truly regenerative and will support humans and other species for times untold. I get really jazzed about permaculture. I get really jazzed about growing food. I get really jazzed about building. I love building. <laughs> and I get really excited about medicinal plants. And all of these things are things I'm excited about. So I love teaching those things. And I've also hired, I mean, we have about 20 guest teachers that we employ for various classes at Wild Abundance. We have, um, we offer short courses, like our first class of the year, because we, t- we like to take the winter off, like most, most same things, which I, I wish everyone could take the winter off, but yeah, I do too. Not always, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we do, we do stuff in the We plant a bunch of perennials and do mm-hmm. marketing stuff and a lot of class curriculum planning and stuff like that. But um, our first class of the year is a women's carpentry class, and we do a four-day women's carpentry class. We have we offer four of those each year, and that's a really class and we have women come in from Vermont and from California and all over the place so we do women's carpentry and then we do a tiny house and natural building class that's co-ed and that is in August and that's really sweet we offer um and so we build we actually build a house for someone here in the community and so people get to learn like from the ground up exactly how to build a tiny house and Hmm. we build we we divide the class into two crews we build one mobile tiny house and one stationary tiny house and so we're going to be doing that here in august and then we have our permaculture classes which i mentioned the um, earth skills and permaculture that's like our flagship course it's really wonderful and it's just really sweet for me because i get to see the students like experience all these different things and get Mm -hmm. really jazzed about stuff and just take it and run with it and so that's one weekend a month for eight months april and it starts at the very last weekend of april we have a few spots left in that class april through november and that's a permaculture design certification course but then we've also added a bunch of really juicy curriculum um that includes primitive skill stuff it actually starts with a wild food backpacking truck, which is oh, wow. amazing. And yeah. so it's not too much hiking because we stop and gather stuff and talk a lot, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's, it's, it's a really sweet experience. And then we yeah. also offer that wild food trip on its own, like a la carte, basically. And then that, uh, that earth sales class also involves natural building. And then we do um, basket making with kudzu, of all things. And all sorts of all sorts of other really good, really good stuff. So that's a really deep program. Not quite as deep as we offer of an apprenticeship. We have an eight month apprenticeship and we have a couple three month apprenticeships and that's 
the the depth of that program is too much to go into right now. So if anyone's excited <laughs> about that, you should definitely check out wildabundance.net. Um, and then we have a wild crafting and medicine making class in May. And then something that we're developing more of this year, which is which is exciting, is we have this women's rewilding class. And that's kind of, I have a lot of roots in that. Like I mentioned, I lived in a bark hut and I lived for five years super primitively on the side of a mountain with several other people. And, um, you know, we started all of our fire by rubbing sticks together and <laughs> cooked all of our food on fire. It was, I'm not that hardcore anymore, but I occasionally like to, like to really dive into that. And we're doing this women's rewilding class and then we have our online hide tanning class. So that is a program. I've been tanning hides for about 15 years and have become a local hide guru of sorts. And um, mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to share that skill with more people. And so I made this online course and it is Somehow I let myself go a little crazy on it. (laughs) It's really, really good. And we spent a lot of time and a lot of money on production and got a really amazing um, videographer to work on it. And the course is, I mean, we've had dozens of people tan hides. Is that mostly uh, deer hides or is it going to apply to a lot of hides? Um, there you can apply it to other hides, but the class is specifically about making brain tan buckskin, which is hair okay. off. It, yeah. Deer hides do not work well with the hair on. The hair just sheds everywhere. Yeah. I actually have an ex boyfriend who who banned deer hair from entering his house because it's <laughs> so bad. But since I've built my own house and I can have I can have as much or as little deer hair in it as I want, which is great. <laughs> My current partner does. He, he's 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 cool with it, but um, but yeah. So so that that's an option for people who live far away if they're wanting to learn with us. And yeah, yeah it's just it's a huge passion, and the school employs a lot of people in the area. Who it's just really sweet. Like when we have our quarterly meetings, everyone's just so happy that they get to make their living doing something that they really care about and believe in. And oh, yeah. it's just really rewarding. So, well, yeah. A question. How many people do you usually uh, have in a class uh, on the ones that are there? I mean, not the online class, of course, but the uh, actually showing up for the classes. It's between probably 13 and 20. Okay. Yeah. So you, you got a lot of classes going on throughout the year. So you got a lot of people around all the time doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. We definitely have people coming through, which is a big part of why we take the winter off. Yeah. But yeah. uh we get a little a little alone family time. But um but yeah, it just varies depending on the course and how intimate it needs to be. And like the tiny house class is more on the bigger side because then we split the group. So we'll have twenty people and there'll be ten people on each building crew, which is really nice to be able to have that um have that level of participation. The women's carpentry classes, they're about 15, and we also split those groups because mm-hmm. they just need that subject needs special attention, like making sure, because, you know, we're using some power tools, and we want we want everyone to feel safe and be safe and right. just, like, get 
attention that one-on-one attention that's so necessary. Well, before I, I have you share the information on getting a hold of you and stuff like that for what all the things you're doing, I did want to mention that I think the one of the first times I saw you, I mean, actually identified you and thought, I know who that is. She's in our Facebook group. I seen you on a TV uh, show. <laughs> Can you tell us oh, a little yeah? about that? <laughs> oh, there's been a few of them, but um, one of them was. I seen you on Live Free or Die is where I seen you. Yeah. Yeah. There's Live, Live, Free, Live Free or Die, which several of my friends were. Um, we're on. There is. Uh, I'm trying to remember the names that they were using, but there's Tony and Amelia were on there. They're yeah. my neighbors, and um, Thorn was my good buddy. And uh, yeah, you were so out I there was, helping him build his little hut yeah. out there in the woods. <laughs> yeah, totally. He called me up because I'd done a bunch of primitive building. He's he's a lovely person. He's running a um, some sort of cool primitive skill thing for kids in Athens, Georgia now. Oh, really? Wow. And, yeah, yeah, it's cool. But you know, the fav- my favorite TV show I was on was this little documentary made by um, Mor- the Morgan Spurlock, who is this uh, producer who made that movie documentary Super Size Me. But yeah. he made one um, for actually country music television called Freedom in America, and this comedian from Nashville, I think, came came out here and. And they, it was great. I had so much fun with him, and he was just delightful to be around. So if you if you can check that out, ever it's really sweet. It's really yeah, funny. He went to all that. these places. Yeah, it's cool. He went to like, yeah. You just have to see it. There's like there's like four wheelers <laughs> and people mudding and all this stuff. And then he comes to Wild Runners and he's like, oh, this this I like. This I like. <laughs> but um, but it was it was really sweet working with them. Well, that's cool. Well, uh, before I let you go, why don't you uh, tell us all about uh, how we folks can get a hold of you, find out more about your classes and the things you're offering, and you know, you know, get more specific information on it. So, wildabundance.net is the place to go to find out about all of our stuff, and um, we also have a blog on there that is a really great resource for. Um, for learning more about all of the stuff that we teach for permaculture and natural building and tiny houses and all that stuff. So it's a really good, great resource, wildabundance.net. Okay, definitely put that in the show notes. And uh, and anything oh. else you uh, send over that we can link up or, or you know, the classes particularly or whatever we can put links to or anything like that, I'll, I'll definitely get all that in the show notes. I just have one more question for you. Have you ever yeah. thought about doing an online permaculture course, or do you feel like that's just something that should always be done hands-on? I've considered it, but I mm-hmm. – and, you know, who knows what the future might hold, but yeah. I, really, I really like it being in person. Yeah, there's a lot of benefits to that, no doubt. And I just know there's so many people that just can't break away for that in-person yeah. stuff that would just love to be part of. You know, and there's just there's not a lot of uh, of online ones out there. And I was kind of curious if you'd ever thought about doing something like that. Yeah, yeah, I should look into it more. It's a lot of work, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. You just seen what you put in that that uh, hide tanning one. I would imagine oh. the permaculture would be way more in depth than even than that. So. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some advantages to it, though, because it's not necessarily as uh, action-oriented. Like the yeah. the high is it's nice to do online courses that are more talking. 
Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and the permaculture classes, I mean, but that is another thing that's nice about doing them in person is it's just so sweet to be, to be um, on the land and doing projects. Yeah. And just like, nothing like getting your hands in the soil or getting your hands on the, on the actual items and, and seeing yeah. them in their environment and working together, you know, and it's just, uh, yeah, that to me, that's what permaculture, I mean, just watching these things how they work together and, you know, and, and you feed one another and do the things they do. And it's just so much better to see that in person, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sweet. But yeah, it's awesome. Well, it's so good talking with you. I really appreciate what you're doing. Well, I'm glad you came on and, and, and shared all this with us. Like I said, you ruled some real uh, good information there today and a couple plants I'm going to be checking out because you got me, you got me a little excited about this. I'm, I'm, that, that sounds really, really cool. I'm thinking I need to know more about these. So I'm going to go check it out. Uh, <laughs> that that uh, green headed cone flowers really got me fascinated. I'm thinking I got to see what oh, this is all about. <laughs> it's so good. And you might even be able to buy it just in a regular ornamental nursery. Yeah, I'm going to have to definitely look into that because uh, I'm definitely uh, definitely intrigued. So, well, thanks so much, Natalie, for coming on and sharing all this uh, good information with us. And uh, good luck on the, uh, the the upcoming classes. And uh, hopefully, I'm yeah. sure they'll go well and, and, and everything will be just great. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, it's been 10 years so far. Everything's 10 years. Been awesome. We'll see what the next three years have for us. <laughs> well, have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you very much. It was good talking to you. Bye. Well, that was good stuff from Natalie. And I, I encourage you to go and, and check out the uh, website, wildabundance.net. I'll have all the links of everything she talked about and classes and the website and all that on the show notes. It's episode 120, so it'll be smalltownhomestead.com forward slash 120. And you can get all the links of everything we talked about today. So definitely go check that out. Uh, like I said, Natalie, she has a, an, an abundance of, of knowledge and wisdom when it comes to outdoor skills and homesteading. So I know that there's a lot you could gain from her. So go check out her stuff for sure. Um, let's jump into our homestead recipe of the week. And today you're going to love the recipe because today you're going to hear about an egg sandwich that will make someone fall in love with you. <laughs> <laughs> this comes in from Ronnie over at the Efficient Homestead. He's a, he's actually a blogger and a podcaster. He just started a, plug, a podcast real uh, recently here that you ought to go check out. I'll have a link to that in the show notes, but check out this recipe from uh, from Ronnie. This is Ronnie from the Efficient Homestead, and I'd like to share with you an egg sandwich recipe that is so good that it made my wife fall in love with me. First, you need to gather your ingredients. You'll need two pieces of bread. We like to use Dave's Killer Bread or any other good, wholesome, whole grain bread. And you'll need two farm fresh eggs of your choice. You'll need some whole butter and a couple of pieces of lunch meat. We prefer thin sliced ham and then some cheese that's your choice as well. We like some smoked cheddar or something like that. First off, you want to crack your eggs in your skillet, get your skillet hot. We like to use, put some butter in the skillet and let that heat up and melt. Get the skillet good and warm, but not too hot. And then crack your eggs into that butter and break the yolks so that they even out and all spread out. Don't scramble them, just let the yolks kind of spread out. While that's cooking, you want to salt and pepper that to your taste and Put some butter on the inside of your bread, just one side of each piece of bread, and set that aside. 
by the time that's done, you should be able to turn your eggs. Don't want to overcook these eggs. You want them just, just right, barely done. Just good over medium done eggs. Then you'll put your lunch meat, like I said, just two thin slices of ham on that, on top of the egg, and then flip that over so the lunch meat is down on the skillet, and let that sizzle for a few minutes. Get that ham heated up real nice. Lay your cheese on top of your egg so it can start to get all melty and goodness. Then you'll pick that lunch meat cheese egg combination up with your spatula and throw your piece of bread down butter side up on, on your skillet. And then put your egg lunch meat down on your bread and let that bread toast in that skillet while you put the other piece of bread on top. Again, that'll be butter side down. So you got the butter on the inside on both pieces of bread. Let that toast on one side for a few minutes. Check it. Make sure you get it as toasty as you like. Flip that over. Let it toast on the other side to your liking. And then put it on a plate and enjoy that egg. So I hope you guys enjoy this egg recipe or egg sandwich recipe. And check us out on our Facebook page, The Efficient Homestead. we got links there to all the other stuff that we're doing. We'd love to have you come visit. I hope you enjoy your egg sandwiches. Thank you. Now, I've eaten a lot of egg sandwiches in my day, but I'm going to tell you, I don't think I've ever had one that sounded quite so good. So, yeah, that that sounds really good. And uh, I don't know if it'll make anybody fall in love with you, but uh, <laughs> like it did for Ronnie. But it did sound really, really good. So check out that recipe or go try that recipe. I think it's it'd be one worth uh, giving it a shot. And I know most homesteaders have an abundance of eggs. So, hey, if you can find out a a way to make a better egg sandwich, all the better, right? Hey, if you want to send in your favorite homestead recipe, you can do that just by making an audio recording and uh, just, you know, pop open your phone if you want or get on a computer and um, just record an audio clip. Most phones have an audio recorder on them uh, for voice recorder, and you can usually just say that to a file and then just email it, send it to uh, sthomestead at gmail.com and just let us know who you are and the recipe you'd like to share and just give it to us and try to keep it between one and five minutes. And like I say all the time, it doesn't have to be perfect. We don't do perfect on this show. Just record it and send it to us. We love getting recipes and I'll take all you'll send me because uh, that's just to become a great feature of this podcast. Folks love it. Uh, I've got a lot of uh, response about that and folks are loving uh, the recipe segment. So send in those recipes, folks. It's, it's We love them. Uh, it's giving us some good ideas on things to try and to uh, to cook up these uh, all this homestead food we have a question for this week's podcast and this question comes in from max from connecticut he says hi harold been enjoying the podcast very much my wife and i bought our first home on two acres a year and a half ago a little more than half the property is wooded the front yard had about seven apple trees but were sorely overgrown and extremely tall and we've had to cut some down due to serious rot and uh, bad placement near the house we want to start replacing them soon and adding some others like peach plum and pear my question is from a permaculture standpoint are there any considerations we should keep in mind when choosing variety and especially placement function stacking or companion plants etc or is it as simple as don't overshade the garden well max congratulations on the uh, the first home on two acres sounds like a great place half of it wooded man sounds like a just an awesome little homestead there and um you know, like every homestead, you're going to get it. There's some definitely going to be some maintenance, and you've had to cut down some trees because they weren't taken care of. They had some disease issues. And yes, absolutely, don't overshade the garden is important. But there is some things you can you can do, some things you should consider when planting 
uh, fruit trees. Now, I'm a I'm an admirer of permaculture, and and because I'm an admirer of permaculture, I watch a lot of permaculture videos, and I read a lot of permaculture books. So I've picked up a few things about uh, planting fruit trees. A great resource, by the way, is a DVD called The Permaculture Orchard. Uh, You can find that on on Amazon. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, and it talks a lot about uh, how to plant the fruit trees and, and, and build guilds around the fruit trees, which is something you'll want to consider. But in there, he talks about the NAP method of planting, the NAP method of planting, and that's alternating your trees with a nitrogen fixer. So it's an apple, then it's a plum, a peach, or a pear, and then a uh, nitrogen fixer in, in in there. A nitrogen fixer, apple, then a plum, peach, or pear. Uh, choose, you want to choose the right nitrogen fixers, though, for you. Uh, you want a nitrogen fixer that's going to be good in your area. Now, it doesn't have to be a tree, necessarily. It could be a bush, uh, that you, a large bush that you might grow in between them. But, uh, you know, you can. there's some nitrogen-fixing trees, like the autumn olive is one, for an example, that uh, is a nitrogen fixer. But it, it can be a little bit invasive, um, so you want to be careful with that. As a matter of fact, it's it's actually illegal in some states to plant the olive olive, like the state that I'm in. As of now, um, they just passed a uh, they just passed a law about about planting autumn olive here. Uh, there's also some um, some bushes like the the silverberry. Uh, now there's the gomi, and then there's an American silverberry. The American silverberry is actually has thorns, so you might want to not consider that. The gomi is a good one. They're both nitrogen fixers, but there are some great. There are some great uh, trees out there as well. So you want to you want to consider yeah I think uh, the red bud is one. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head uh some that are um are good uh good trees. You want to do some uh, research on the ones that would be the best in your area cuz you know they're going to do a lot of things. They're going to attract pollinators. They're um some of them are going to repel certain predators and bugs. Uh like I said some of them are um dynamic accumulators some of them are nitrogen fixers uh so they they all have certain you know different kinds of uh qualities so you definitely definitely want to plant a guild now it doesn't just have to be alternating trees you can also build that guild around the tree so again you're going to it's nice if you can have something that provides a mulch i like comfrey for a mulch around a uh, fruit tree because it's it's a dynamic accumulator it's pulling those nutrients up into its leaves and those leaves are shading all the way around there um, they're they're providing a mulch, and then even this, and when those die back, it provides this big fluffy mulch around the tree, which is really nice. Now you can interplant that with some other things as well. I know that uh, you might want to consider something like fennel will will do a lot to uh, prevent your trees from getting a disease. Uh, things like uh, yarrow w- w- can do a lot to prevent uh, to repel pests and even things like daffodils and things like that maybe even something like oregano that can help uh, repel pests as well so you just want to consider things like that i mean you want to attract beneficial insects you're wanting to deter wildlife um, you want to create a mulch that can also fertilize a lot of times um, things that will attract pollinators repel pests and things that will keep the weeds down around. I mean, that's what I like about using comfrey. A lot of people plant hostas around trees. And, yeah, that's great. You can do that. But it will actually can attract a lot of things. And it doesn't really give you a lot of benefit. I, I like comfrey, you know, for putting around a tree. So if you want to plant three or four or five um, comfrey plants around a tree, you know, it can do a lot for that. And then kind of in between those, put some, some chives and some, you know, oregano or some you know, something like that. You just have to kind of do the experiment. You have to, or you have to kind of research it, see what you want. Now you want to do a few things. You want to provide for the tree. You want to provide for you as well. I mean, there's no sense planting anything that, that doesn't do something for you. Like I was telling you about the nitrogen fixer, like a, like 
you know, putting in a gomi tree um, or, or silverberry or something like that. You know, um, these trees can, you know, they provide food for you. So you can actually use that. But again, you have to be careful, evasiveness, study whatever trees you want. So you want to definitely research a little bit. You want to plant things that are going to help the trees, things that can help the garden, things that benefit your homestead overall. But you also want to plant things that benefit you. That's kind of the beauty of being really careful about what you're selecting to plant right now. Plant around that tree, things that will benefit the tree, but also benefit you. Um, so those are some things I would consider if I'm putting in a tree guild. And, of course, you want to be careful about uh, planting things that are going to shade out other areas with your trees. Uh, planting them in a way that won't shade out the garden. Um, you know, things like that. You know, and there's just a lot of things to consider. But overall... You don't have to overcomplicate it, really. But each guild around each tree can provide a lot for you. I mean, around here, I generally, I put a few herbs and I put comfrey uh, around most of my trees. And I kind of leave it at that. I don't go all out. And I separate my trees quite a bit because um, you can separate them with, you can either separate them by distance, like by a great distance, or separate them by other trees, like have things in between them, like a nitrogen fixer and then a, you know, a stone fruit in between an apple tree or something like that, like peach plum whatever in between your apple tree and the other and just keep them separated because a lot of the diseases that will attack one won't attack the other so don't want to make it easy for them by branches starting to get too close or touching each other and it just spreads right to the other tree or bugs going from one tree right to the next tree i mean you want to make it a little bit more difficult for them so you want to plant it in a way that just doesn't you know it just isn't like going down a row and attacking everything so you can by separating them you can do that and i try to do that here on my own property we have different kinds of things we have pear and apple and plum and mulberry and we have them separated by distance around the yard and kind of scattered around here and there but anytime you put them in a like a straight row like a lot of orchards do it's just a it's just a a beacon uh, saying hey come attack us you know and then you can just work right down the row and if you watch that dvd permaculture orchard uh, he talks about separating you know and planting this and then this and then this and then doing your little guilds around the trees and and he makes it really simple it's a really good dvd i recommend anybody that's interested in permaculture and planting trees watch it uh, because there's just a lot of information there so it's a really good one to get your hands on if, if you know because trees aren't cheap and if you're going to plant a bunch of them i mean definitely uh, checking out that dvd can be well well worth the money so go go get that dvd if, if you want and check that out because it, it can teach you a lot about planting an orchard if you're really wanting to have a, a good orchard it's one that um, one that will provide a lot of food and be healthy so check that out. Well, Max, I hope that helps you and gives you some ideas. I don't want to get too deep into it. I mean, I could definitely turn a whole show uh, out of that question, and maybe I will at some point. It's, it's a good topic. It's a good question. It's something I don't think I've addressed in, in depth before. So I, here in the future, I might just take a whole episode and, and talk about that. But those are just a few ideas to get you started. The alternating with a nitrogen fixer and then stone fruit and then apple. Um choosing the right nitrogen fixers, whether tree or bush, and then planting your guilds with herbs and, and, and other things around the, uh, around the trees. So, and, and so hopefully that helps you and give you some ideas. If you want to submit a question for the podcast, you can send in your questions by calling or texting to our voicemail at 765-203-1949. And you can just submit questions as often as you like. We love getting questions. And then, uh, like I said, I, the way I'm doing the format of the show now, sometimes I may not spend a yeah, go into great depths answering the questions but i definitely like to, to at least give you some ideas and point you in the right direction and who knows we might take your question and make a whole show out of it at some point because uh you get some great questions and there's just an endless amount of topics to try to tackle so yeah send in those questions we love getting them 
the show notes for this episode can be found at smalltownhomestead.com forward slash 120. And I'll leave you with this quote from Abraham Lincoln. He says, we can complain because rose bushes have thorns or rejoice because thorn bushes have roses. It's all about perspective, folks. Enjoy your week. Happy homesteading and God bless. Thanks for listening. To see the show notes for this podcast or listen to other podcast episodes, go to smalltownhomestead.com. There you can also read our blog, connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, and take advantage of the many resources we make available to help you along in your homesteading journey. Please share this podcast and help us to carry out our mission of helping others to homestead today for a better tomorrow.